0: The year, 1281. The place, Japan. The Mongols rule the greatest empire the world has ever seen, but they are about to find a worthy opponent in the Japanese samurai. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is Episode 2, Divine Wind. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope y'all have an excellent day. I'm thrilled that you guys are here, because I've got a good one for you. The Mongol invasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281. Lots of people may have heard about this in passing, or even know that a big storm helped them defeat the Mongol invasions. But there's much more to the story than that. And I hope y'all are ready to hear all about it. A couple things I need to say. First, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. This podcast is PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website. So if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but with all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. But before we get too deep into it, this is still just episode two. So if you want to know more of what this podcast is about, or what my whole deal is, or who I am, who is this guy, I have an intro podcast in the feed right now, episode zero, as well as a website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com that you can check out if you'd like. If not, let's get into it. Our story today begins with a modern discovery. For centuries, Japanese fishermen off the small island of Takashima have found artifacts, bits of pots or rusted iron or driftwood and scattered debris. The origin of these objects was never a mystery. Every Japanese schoolchild knew the story the great Mongol invasion of Japan had been defeated by a divine wind, a great typhoon, that had sent the fleet of Kublai Khan to the bottom of Imari Bay. This divine wind, translated into Japanese as kamikaze, was supposed to be proof of Japan's unique protection by the gods and heaven. But in the 1980s, a skeptical World War II veteran named Morao Tozai began to investigate the truth of one of Japan's national myths. Maybe he wondered why, in those terrible days of 1944 and 1945, so many of his countrymen had flown to their death in suicide attacks named for the divine wind, the kamikazes. Moro Tozai wanted answers. And with the new science of maritime archaeology just becoming viable, maybe it was time to look for answers beneath the surface of Imari Bay. Moral Tozai began the expeditions and was soon followed by younger and better-funded scientists from as far abroad as the United States. Among them was Kinzo Hayashida, a UPenn graduate, who managed to find the remains of ships and weapons and even, surprisingly, the primitive gunpowder bombs used by the Mongol fleet. He also found some of the first human remains of one of Kublai Khan's soldiers. Among some scattered bones, some ancient armor, and a bundle of crossbow bolts rusted into one piece, they found a bowl inscribed with the words, Wang, Commander of 100. Captain Wang was 20 years old, and as his last name indicates, he was not Mongolian. He was Chinese. Did he have a wife or children or a set of parents who missed him? Did they ever wonder what became of their loved one, and did he ever imagine his body would scatter the bottom of a Japanese bay? But the discoveries were not over, and the more marine archaeologists who arrived to dig up Kublai Khan's ruined invasion fleet, the more they discovered that the myths might not be true after all. The truth of the divine wind and the fate of Captain Wang and thousands of his friends and enemies have only recently come to light. Why was the fleet destroyed? Well, That depends on who you ask. Today, we'll be talking about the Mongol invasions of Japan in 1274 and 1281. We're going to talk about how both sides ruled and how both sides fought. We're going to dive into the reasons for the Mongol invasions, how they went, and why they ended the way they did. We're also going to ask a big question. What would have happened without that lucky storm? We're going to talk about the men and a couple of women, who fought in this great clash of civilizations. And our unknown soldiers today are the Chinese and Korean conscripts who fought and died for their Mongol overlords. Finally, I'll tell you why it's important. You're asking, why should I care? You should care. And I'm going to tell you why. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. When I stop talking and the music swells, that's your cue to get up and stretch, order pizza, do the thing you need to do. Grab your bow, and watch out for grenades, and let's go on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're headed to Japan, by way of mongolia the mongol empire was the largest land empire the world had ever seen a central asian warlord named Timujin had gradually unified the tribes of the steppe and in 1206 he assembled these peoples in a mass movement under his own indomitable authority he took the title Genghis Khan, which probably means something like a universal ruler, and began to lead his army on campaigns of conquest from Persia to China. Genghis Khan's rise unleashed something like a human avalanche on the settled societies of Asia and Europe. By the time of his death in 1227, the Mongols had overrun most of northern China and central Asia and were planning further conquests. It was after their founder's death But the Mongol blitzkrieg would swallow up much of the world. The Mongol military was one of the best-led, best-organized, best-trained fighting forces in the pre-modern era. The backbone of the Mongol army, of course, was the lethal horse archer. Now, don't get me wrong. Genghis Khan did not invent horse archer tactics. The mounted warrior on horseback wielding the composite bow had been the deadliest weapon system across Eurasia for centuries. And any number of steppe nomad peoples had posed a terrible threat to the civilized empires with the swift, dangerous horse archer. Think of the Huns or the Turks. What Genghis Khan did, though, was transform these warriors into a highly disciplined army. He made revolutionary changes to Mongol society, converting them into a centralized and efficient war machine, led by command and communication networks that were unmatched until the modern era. This war machine enabled Genghis Khan and his successors to conquer lands from Egypt to Korea, from Ukraine to Afghanistan, from Turkey to Siberia. And as brilliant as these military conquests were, their consequences were brutal, horrifyingly brutal. The day the Mongol Empire arrived in your neighborhood was the worst and probably last day of your life. Horrific scenes of rape, pillage, murder, and destruction rippled out from the Mongol conquests. To estimate the ultimate human cost of the Mongol Conquest is impossible, but it has been pitched as high as $55 That's just a hair short of World War II. The violence of the Mongols was one of the world's great human disasters. Now, as huge of an area as the Mongols did conquer, there was one land that still defied them, and that was China. Its first, last, and greatest enemy. Genghis Khan had led the first attacks on China way back in 1209, but by the 1260s, 50 years later, the Song Dynasty of China still held out in the southern half of the country. Even the greatest Mongol generals had only been able to make slow progress against the Chinese. China was the Mongol Empire's biggest piece of unfinished business, and the task of finishing said business would fall to Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan. From the moment he became Great Khan of the Mongol Empire in 1260, Kublai Khan set his attention and energy to the conquest of Song China. Now, this was a massive war, a huge undertaking involving hundreds of thousands of men on both sides. It was gargantuan. Even the terrible Mongol cavalry had trouble with the great walled cities, powerful and disciplined infantry armies, and especially the Song Chinese Navy. Kublai had to adapt and change normal Mongol strategies to cope with this new challenge. And this required incorporating Chinese subjects into his army, both as disciplined infantry forces and as the seed of a new Mongol navy. Kublai Khan represents sort of a merger between the old Mongol ways and the ancient traditions of China. He had come to realize that you can conquer territories by being a genocidal maniac, but it's kinda hard to rule that way. This also suited his character, since Kublai was always more thoughtful, complex, and philosophical than his more traditional Mongol contemporaries. He had something like an infatuation for Chinese culture, and compared to his predecessors, he was a tolerant and enlightened ruler who promoted learning and culture. Yeah, compared to his predecessors. Kublai Khan is still a Mongol. He's still really brutal. He's just a little bit less brutal, a nicer side of brutal, This was a strategic move as much as it was a personal one, since conquering and governing China just required a different approach. It's fair to say that the Mongols had to sort of become a little bit Chinese in order to complete the conquest of China, but Kublai took it one step further. In 1271, he officially announced the Yuan Dynasty, basically declaring himself the new Chinese emperor. A lot of his Mongol kinsmen might have said that Kublai was conquering China's land, but China had conquered his mind. But China was not Kublai's only concern. As the war against the Song Dynasty continued for years and years, the Mongol armies still expanded into other lands as well. One of these lands, overlooked for a long time, was Korea. After a series of complicated diplomatic and military events in the year 1273, just as Kublai was still grinding away in southern China, some of his generals managed to overcome the last vestiges of resistance in Korea. But here, of course, the Mongols stopped, because Korea hangs like a great dagger into the East China Sea, and the Mongols had yet to build a great fleet that could carry their conquests over the water. But already, Kublai's eyes were turning east. Across the Straits of Tsushima, only 100 miles from Korea, lay the mysterious, unconquered islands of Japan. What's the image in your head when you think of pre-modern Japan? Maybe you think of ninjas or katana-wielding samurai in their huge boxy armor with little horns on top of it. Or maybe you think of geishas or men in kimonos pouring tea. Those are the pop culture images of pre-modern Japan. Most of those images, though, come from much later periods in Japanese history than the one we're talking about. The popular samurai images especially come from early modern Japan which is just about the same time as the European period of Elizabeth and Shakespeare, so far from medieval. Pop culture has a way of smushing a bunch of stuff from different eras into a single mental image. Did William Wallace wear kilts? Probably not. Did he paint his face blue? Probably not. Same thing, they just smushed together Japanese culture into one era. Japan we're looking at in the 1270s was a totally different beast. Now. The government of Japan in this period was complicated. It was bonkers complicated, downright labyrinthian. It was like a Russian babushka doll of who controls who. Well, here we go. So, Japan had an emperor, right? Makes sense that he would be in charge, right? Eh, wrong. The Japanese emperor hadn't really been in charge of Japan for like five centuries by the 1270s. He was a figurehead a religious and administrative symbol that was incredibly important for political legitimacy, but still a figurehead. For most of the last few centuries, the emperor had been under the control of various stewards and courtiers, usually from the Fujiwara or the Taira families. But in the 1180s, a new military family called the Minamoto had come to power, and they had established a new government at their family home of Kamakura. The Minamoto established the military dominance of the powerful samurai families over the central government. So there were two capitals, the figurehead at capital of the emperor at Kyoto, and the Minamoto capital at Kamakura. The Kamakura military government was known as the Bakufu, or literally, Tent Government, like a military camp. But the Minamoto leaders were also given the ancient military title of Sei Taishogun or literally barbarian fighting general by the emperors, which has led Western historians to refer to this position as just shogun. The bakufu reinforced its power by granting the title of governor to powerful noble families, who in turn handed down territories of their own to lesser families. This system of government kinda looked like the European system of counts and dukes and knights, you know, feudalism, what some people call feudalism, but there were important differences. The imperial bureaucratic structure remained unchallenged, and hierarchies were incredibly rigid. There was no chance of some weirdo fighting his way to the top of the Kamakura Bakufu. This was a system of military nobility, a decentralized system of knights and local lords that still followed a rigid power structure centered on Kamakura. Medieval Japan was much more formal and organized than its contemporary European counterparts. So what does that mean? That means the Minamoto family's in charge, right? Eh, wrong again. See, the problem with any hereditary system is that eventually you have a kid in charge. You know, the old shogun dies, the new shogun's a kid. And kids can't really be in charge. Just ask any president of a high school student government. Kids can't be in charge. This meant that the real power in Kamakura fell to the Regency, which by the 1270s was dominated by the Hojo family. So there you have it. The emperor is technically the boss, but it's really the shogun, but it's really, really the regent. And guys, I promise you, that is the simple version. The man in charge in the 1270s in Japan then was Hojo Tokimune, the young regent of the Kamakura Bakufu. When the first Mongol challenge to Japan arrived, Hojo Tokimune was 18. So yeah, okay, there's still a kid in charge. But Tokimune, was an inspired leader, and he would do Japan proud in the years to come. He was a deeply religious Zen Buddhist obsessed with honor and the warrior's way, and these commitments would help him retain fortitude and courage in the trying times to come. Mess with a super-radicalized, overconfident teenager at your own peril. The big political issue in Japan in the 1200s was religion, and as in many other societies of the time, Religion was extremely important beyond just a confessional, personal basis. Japanese religion was a fusion of the traditional polytheistic religion known as Shinto, with a complex network of gods and shrines and beliefs, with the various Buddhist sects that dominated the court and high society. Everything was religious. Everything, religion was everything. War, peace, the harvest, the yearly weather, even personal fortune was considered to be affected by the gods. Japan was also in the middle of this period of something like a religious revival, with flourishing Buddhist temples and new populist cults circulating throughout the countryside. Now, despite Buddhism being a religion that is supposed to promote harmony and peace, there wasn't a whole lot of harmony and peace in Japanese Buddhism at this time. The Hojo regents of Kamakura had recently adopted the new school of Zen Buddhism, which had only recently come over from China in the last few decades. The social instability of the shogunate's takeover had caused an uptick in religious questioning and new ideas, and Zen was only one of the new creeds that had found favor in Japan. It was especially favored by Hojo Tokimune, the current regent. On the other hand, there was Nichiren, a prominent traditionalist monk who had no chill with Zen. Nichiren wanted that old-time religion, based on the ancient texts and traditional practices of Buddhism and despised the newfangled ideas of Zen. Nichiren promised doom and disaster if Japan did not return to the old ways, and in particular, he prophesied that a foreign invader would strike at the Japanese land and only prayer and devotion would save Japan from its enemies. He was so annoying that Hojo Tokimune had him exiled twice. You ever been so annoying that someone kicked you out twice? It may sound like I'm going down a weird rabbit hole with all this talk about Japanese religion, but it is all very critical to unraveling the truth of the Mongol invasions of Japan. Nichiren sounds like a million old school preachers from a million different time periods, including our own, but he was lucky enough to be right, because at that very moment, Kublai Khan's Mongol Chinese empire was turning its eye towards Japan. We're not entirely sure why Kublai made the decision to attack Japan especially since he was still heavily involved in China when he made that choice. But this actually may have been related. Japan had continued to trade with Song China during their conflict with the Mongols, and Kublai may have been trying to cut his enemies off economically. The choice of Hakata Bay as the main invasion site seems to point in this direction, since Hakata Bay was Japan's main trading port with the outside world. There was also the matter of the Woku, the Japanese pirates that raided the Korean and Chinese mainland from their bases in Japan. In the 1250s and the 1260s, the Woku menace was particularly damaging to Korea, which had just become a vassal of the Mongol Empire. Now, the Japanese government wasn't cool with these pirates and killed any of them that they captured, but the Woku pirates may have caused Kublai Khan to see Japan as a security threat, a pirate haven. No one likes a pirate haven. Or... According to our first and most famous source on the invasion of Japan, there was another possible reason. Marco Polo lived in Kublai Khan's China during the invasions of Japan, and he claimed that the island of what he called a uh, Zapangu was a land of limitless gold. Now this is obvious bull. This is obvious bull. Some El Dorado type mythology, but who knows? Maybe Kublai believed that Japan had limitless gold. Or maybe the Mongol Emperor was just in a conquering mood and felt like kicking Japan around would be fun. It wasn't like the Mongols ever needed much reason to go attack somebody. So either way, whatever the reason, in 1268, Kublai dispatched a Chinese envoy to bring a proclamation to Japan by way of Korea. Even as this envoy sailed, Kublai was ordering the Korean vassal state. The Korean king is his vassal to build a fleet and conduct reconnaissance of the islands south of Korea. At this point, Kublai seems like he just wanted to blockade the trade routes between Japan and China, and if he could persuade Japan to break off relations with China, that might solve the issue right there. Japan was a small, poor country, almost not worth the effort of conquering, but if they continued to trade with China, they would have to be dealt with. The letter from Kublai Khan ended up reaching both the emperor's court in Kyoto, and the bakafu in kamakura here is how the letter began the emperor of the great mongols being commissioned by heaven hereby respectfully presents a letter to the king of japan From time immemorial, rulers of small states, the borders of which closely adjoin, have always endeavored to maintain friendly relations with each other and have manifested mutual respect and trust. On our part, we, from the time of our forefathers, have received the mandate of heaven and have ruled the universe. Innumerable people in far-off lands have learned to fear our power and have longed for our virtuous rule. It ended like this. We hope that henceforth you will enter into friendly relations and that both our people and yours will enjoy peace and harmony. Moreover, the sages consider the entire universe one family. Therefore, if we should not establish friendly relations with each other, how could it be in accordance with the doctrine of one family? Who would care to appeal to arms? I hereby leave the matter to your highness's careful consideration. Reading between the lines... This was an obvious threat. Friendly relations to the Japanese was basically code for submission, and the Japanese had never submitted to anyone, even the various empires of China. The contrast between the Emperor of the Great Mongols and the King of Japan in the letter obviously placed one above the other. Finally, the last paragraph implied a threat of war. Who would care to appeal to arms? Obviously insinuates that if you don't become our friend slash subordinate, We will appeal to arms. The Japanese courts, both the Imperial in Kyoto and the bakufu in Kamakura of young Hojo Tokimune, answered the Khan's letter with silence, infuriating, defiant silence. Kublai sent diplomats again in 1269, 1271, and 1273, but they were ignored, not allowed to proceed to the capital and confronted only with stony silence. Kublai received no answer, but that was all the answer he needed. The Koreans were ordered to construct a fleet, and plans were laid for the first Mongol invasion of Japan. So what did the Japanese have to face the Mongol juggernaut? What forces did this poor, isolated island kingdom have at its disposal to fight the mightiest military of the age? All right, guys, let's meet the samurai. Well, kind of. These aren't your movie samurai. I'm going to prove that to you with the first piece of information you're going to get. What is a samurai's main weapon? Did you say a sword? Eh, Wrong. At least for this time period. Samurai warfare in the Kamakura era of Japan revolved around the Kyoba no Michi, the way of bow and horse. That's right. The most famous horse archers in history, the Mongols, would confront a Japanese samurai culture that also revolved around horse archery. But unlike the light, coordinated, disciplined Mongol horse archers, with their short compound bows, the Japanese had developed a totally different style. They rode much smaller horses, in much heavier armor, firing much larger bows with longer halves on their arrows. This was a much less mobile, almost more formal style of warfare. The smaller horses of the Japanese islands would not be replaced by large mainland animals until much later in history so that the Japanese samurai was a slower but more well-armored counterpart to his Mongol adversary. Now, there were no slouches in combat. Japanese samurai archers were incredibly accurate, and they were still very skilled at hand-to-hand combat with their tachi or their katana. The samurai were powerful, capable warriors, but they were all out for their own goals and glory, and they were very hard to coordinate in battle. Despite the careful, complex, labyrinthine, organization of the Japanese government, the Japanese military was incredibly decentralized and very difficult to control from above. When samurai did join battle, there were very little formalized tactics or centralized command involved. The average tactical unit was a prominent samurai and his warrior band, usually consisting of a handful of follower samurai and some random soldiers armed with spears. These bands were rarely larger than 20 or 30 men, So basically, any samurai battle was was just a bunch of samurai and their boys doing their own thing, trying to gain honor by burning stuff and cutting off heads. The battle usually consisted of samurai horse archers circling each other and trying to gain a precise shot on their opponent, almost like a bunch of miniature duels, while the poor peasant infantry shuffled around trying not to die. The samurai was a shining paragon of toxic masculinity. They were incredibly obsessed with pride, honor, and achievement, but not to the extent that they followed some sort of code. You would never find a more backstabbing, murderous, touchy group of men than the medieval samurai. Fights could be started, and sometimes battles and wars were started because of a personal insult or a slight. The samurai took every opportunity to ambush or assassinate their opponents, kill them in their beds, burn their fields, slaughter their civilians. These guys did not play fair. Honor was gained by results, not by the way in which they were accomplished. The whole idea of a faultless samurai honor code was not existent in the 1260s, 1270s. One final thing to note was that the samurai fought for reward. It was traditional Japanese practice to take eyewitness statements and testimony to determine which samurai were deserving of reward After a great war or campaign, rewards could be titles or money or land rights, and this was incredibly important in a military feudal system like Japan. Military service came with an implied promise of reward. But keep in mind that religion is incredibly important as well. And since the Japanese believed that military affairs could be affected by prayer and sacrifice, remember, religion affects everything. Even Buddhist and Shinto temples could ask for governmental rewards for their military service. The prayers of the monks were seen as a military necessity, just as much as the swords of the samurai. And on that note, I need to introduce today's protagonist. One of our most important sources for the Mongol invasions of Japan are the scrolls of a single samurai named Takizaki Suinaga. Since he records a lot of the Japanese combat tactics that they used against the Mongol invasions. The good news for us is that Takazaki Suinaga was kind of a douchebag, which will help make his story very entertaining. This guy's great. Suinaga prayed to the gods all the time, but he didn't pray for his country to survive, he didn't pray for honor or glory, he prayed for rewards for his honorable deeds. Basically, he was all about number one and the reason i like him so much is that everyone knows someone like this loser so we're gonna hear all about takazaki suinaga and his stupid hijinks throughout this episode so that's the samurai with their ritualized style of individual-based warfare they were about to encounter the ferocious war machine of the mongol empire Before we get really into it, what else is going on in 1274, the year of the first Mongol invasion of Japan? What's going on around the world? When is this exactly? So, Marco Polo is kicking around China. The biggest thing going on in America is probably the Zapotec civilization in southern Mexico, before the Aztecs. In Europe, it's the high middle ages. This is about two decades before England invades Scotland and fights William Wallace, and crusading is just starting to go out of style. Hope that all helps. In 1274, Kublai Khan's empire set out on its first invasion of Japan. Now, the Mongols were never a seafaring people. Whenever they ran into a body of water larger than a river, they weren't 100% certain what to do. That meant that to cross the 100 miles of sea from Korea to Japan, the passage called the Straits of Tsushima, the Mongols would have to rely on their subject peoples, and that meant the Koreans. Any good empire. That wants to survive has to use the human resources at its disposal, and that means making efficient use of conquered peoples and their talents. For example, we saw last week how the British used Indian troops, called sepoys, in their war in Afghanistan. The Mongols had always been really good at this. Kublai Khan, in particular, was excellent at this empire-building necessity. See how he integrated Chinese civil servants into the Mongol system. But one thing he didn't exactly understand, or just didn't care about, was the pressure building a fleet could place on an economy. Navies aren't built overnight, and it took years for Koreans to build and crew the vessels Kublai would need to invade Japan. The strain on the Korean economy was so bad that there was a major rebellion in 1271. Still, the Koreans built and manned the fleet that the Mongols would use to invade Japan. Now we come to the question of numbers. In ancient and medieval sources, the numbers that are given by the chroniclers are basically always wrong. For instance, the Greek historian Herodotus claims that Xerxes led like a million Persians into Greece in 480 BC. Now those numbers are stupid and possible, like absolutely no way that a million dudes were supplied and fed and managed over hundreds of miles. So that's pretty much the case well into the modern era. Numbers are always exaggerated. Japanese writers said that the Mongols assembled 40,000 men and 900 ships for this first invasion, which, no, nah. The Mongols probably only had about 15,000 fighting men, with another 8,000 Korean auxiliaries. But the number of ships is probably pretty accurate. The Mongol invasion fleet set sail on November 2, 1274. The first targets of the invasion would be the two small Japanese islands of Tsushima and Iki, which sit like stepping stones between the Korean and Japanese mainlands, these tiny islands had the very bad luck to be in the direct path of the world's most dangerous military. On the evening of November 4th, the Mongol fleet was spotted off the coast of Tsushima. Its governor, Sokikuni, was ready with his small force of soldiers. According to legend, the gods had sent him a warning. The shrine of Hachiman, the god of war, had mysteriously caught fire just that morning, and when the fire was extinguished, a flock of doves landed on the burnt roof. The dove was Hachiman's messenger, and this was interpreted as an omen of imminent attack. Really nice of the gods to provide such a good early warning system. But that wasn't going to help So Sokikuni. He had 80 samurai horse archers and their small force of followers. So when the Mongols landed on Tsushima with around 8,000 infantry, the Japanese were heavily outnumbered. The assault on Tsushima would be the first clash of two drastically different ways of war, the disciplined, organized war machine of the Mongols and the feudal, personal warrior art of the samurai. Yeah, it didn't go well. When the Mongols landed in the pre-dawn hours of November 5th, Tsukikuni led his forces to engage them on the beach in a fierce, swirling battle. The excellent samurai archery picked off many of the Mongol warriors, but the Mongol infantry advanced in tight, disciplined formations behind wooden shields, unleashing mass volleys of short-range arrows that seemed to blot out the sun. The Mongols and Koreans relayed battle orders through the banging of drums and gongs, which instructed their soldiers to perform simple drills and movements, a lot like fife and drum would do in the age of the American Revolution. The Mongols were supported by rock-throwing siege weapons that were fired from the ships. The first clash went about like you'd expect. Though Sokikuni's samurai fought bravely and took many of their foes with them, they were ultimately caught in the grip of the Mongol military machine. The defenders of Tsushima were overwhelmed. Sukikuni led the remaining samurai in a last gallant charge. They rode headlong into the Mongol ranks, engaging in hand-to-hand combat until, one by one, they were brought down. The Mongols proceeded to ransack the town of Tsushima, slaughter most of the inhabitants, and move on to their next target. The Mongols landed on Iki on November 13th. Its governor was Taira Kagitaka, who ruled the island from his small castle. Messengers had already brought word of the attack on Tsushima, and Kagitaka had already sent for help to the mainland. Once again, Taira Kagetaka led his samurai to attack the Mongols on the beach and once again they were swamped by showers of arrows with Mongol drums and gongs ringing out over the cold, barren beaches of the Japanese island. Kagetaka was forced to abandon the beaches and retreated to his castle that evening. The Japanese prepared to defend Iki until help could arrive, but time was running out. The next morning, the Mongols surrounded the castle and began their assault. Kagetaka ordered men and women alike to take up arms and fight for their lives, but the Mongol siege tactics blasted the primitive hill fort. When they broke through one of the gates, Kagetaka led the cavalry to the scene and drove them back with heavy losses, but the Mongol siege weapons had set his wooden castle on fire, and he retreated to the burning citadel to make his last stand. To ensure that word got back to the mainland of what had happened at Iki, Tagetaka ordered a samurai to escort his daughter Katsura out a secret passage into a waiting boat. After Katsura said a tearful farewell to her mother and father, the samurai escorted her and her maid, Umagaye, down to the small craft. When they got to the boat, Umagaye donned a suit of armor and picked up a weapon and decided to return to the fight. When they objected and asked her to come with them, she refused, stating her intention to die fighting beside the family that had served her so well. She hurried back to the castle, where the battle was nearing its end. Yeah, so the maid put on a suit of armor and grabbed a spear. That's pretty hardcore, I think. The Japanese defenders of the castle were horrified to discover that the Mongols had chained up a number of Japanese prisoners and were marching behind them as they approached the fortifications, basically turning them into human shields. The samurai had to put down their bows and, over the objections of the prisoners, charge into the Mongol ranks to their death. As the Mongols closed in, Taira Kagitaka committed suicide with his sword, and his family burned themselves alive within the palace. Kagitaka's daughter was killed in the escape attempt on the small boat, but his loyal samurai managed to get away and bring warning to the Japanese mainland. Behind him, the Mongols plundered and destroyed everything they could reach on Iki. As the Mongols set sail from Iki to make their landing on the mainland, They committed an act of such amazing brutality that it seems fake, but it wasn't. The Mongols cut holes in the hands of all the women they captured, threaded a rope through the holes, and hung their prisoners from the sides of the ships. This grisly, horrible sight, can you imagine that, was one of the first things that the defenders of Japan would see when the Mongol fleet approached on November 19th, 1274. The fate of Tsushima and Iki would be the fate of all of Japan. All that stood in their way were the samurai. For their landing site, the Mongols had chosen Hakata Bay. Hakata Bay is an inlet on Kyushu, the southernmost of Japan's four main islands, and throughout history, it has been Japan's window to the Asian mainland. Almost all trade from China or Korea flowed through Hakata Bay, and the local city of Zaifu was the headquarters of the Japanese government on Kyushu. It had been here that the Mongol ambassadors had landed and been ignored or turned aside. It had been here that the Japanese carried on their trade with Song China. Hakata Bay also had broad, easily accessible landing beaches. It was the logical choice for both military and political reasons for any invasion of Japan. Now, the Japanese knew the Mongols were coming. Just because they were on the fringes of Asia, that didn't mean Japan wasn't aware of the Mongols, or the situation in China, or the massive fleet being built in Korea. Besides the warnings they had received from Tsushima and Iki, the Japanese had some warning of the Mongol invasion, but you wouldn't have known that if you saw them in November 1274. The only plan that the Bakufu had was basically, if you see them, try to stop them, I guess. I think personally, the Japanese just didn't realize how much danger they were in. But they were about to. The government at Zaifu began to summon samurai from all over Kyushu once it received word of the Mongol invasion. Two local government officials had gathered up around 120 samurai, along with their retainers, to resist the Mongol landing at Hakata Bay. Now, we don't know how many retainers each samurai brought. One of those medieval number puzzles that the historians pull their hair trying to figure out. With samurai and their retainers, a figure of between four to 6,000 seems pretty plausible. Keep in mind, all these guys just sort of picked up their bows, put on their armor, and came when they were called. Kind of like the Minutemen. My point? No organization whatsoever. On November 19th, 1274, the Mongol fleet appeared in Hakata Bay. The ragtag samurai army of Kyushu was there to receive them. The Japanese were horror-stricken to see the corpses of their women hanging from the Mongol vessels, and soon they were bracing for battle. The Mongol soldiers disembarked from their ships in small boats, rowing forward through the surf, spilling from their boats and assembling into formation. The Japanese advanced to fight the Mongols on the beach. Here is what one of the Japanese chronicles, the Hachiman Gudokun, says about the Mongol attack. The Mongols disembarked from their ships, mounted their horses, raised their banners, and began the attack. The grandson of the Japanese Commander-in-Chief, Shoni Sukuyoshi, who was barely 12 or 13 years old, loosed a signaling arrow with a small head to start the battle. But all the Mongols just burst out laughing. They beat large drums and banged gongs and sometimes fired bombs made from paper and iron. The Japanese horses were so frightened by these stupendous sounds that they could not be controlled. Because they could not handle their horses, none could face the enemy. The short Mongol arrows had their tips smeared with poison. Some of our men were overcome by the effects of the poison. 10,000 men in all were prepared with their arrows and fired them so that they fell like rain. How are you supposed to fight that, man? Couple of things I want to point out, though. The signaling arrow that the young Shoni Tsukiyoshi fired was a part of traditional Japanese warfare, the two sides would line up, the whistling arrow would be fired, and that would be the signal for everybody to commence fighting. The Mongols, of course, thought it was silly. Second, what are these bombs? Now, the Mongol use of small bombs was unclear, and they weren't sure if it was a myth for a long time, until naval archaeology found a few examples in the wreckage of the fleet from 1281. The Mongols had learned about gunpowder during their invasions of China, And had developed a very early fragmentation grenade that they would use in both invasions of japan that's right in the age before freaking william wallace or the black death the mongols are throwing grenades at their enemies of course the japanese were freaked out you would be too if some psychos from nowhere showed up and started throwing grenades at your face the japanese resistance on the beach was ultimately hopeless and they were forced to retreat inland As twilight closed in, they rallied on the fortifications of an old castle and began to offer real resistance to the Mongol advance. The local governor's son, Shogi Kagasuke, had taken command, and as the sun set lower in the sky, he noticed a particularly large Mongol leading the attack. Kagasuke took aim and shot the Mongol in the face. This, in fact, was Liu Fuxiang, one of the Mongol generals. Side note, Liu Fuxiang is not a Mongol name, it is a Chinese name. The conquered peoples of the Mongol Empire were fighting their battles for them. Even as the Mongols began to falter and pull back, our hero arrived. Takazaki Kusuinaga came riding up with his retainers, eager to take part in the battle before he lost his chance. He came riding up to the defensive position. Several of the leaders told him to stay back and get under cover. But Suinaga was determined to gain honor and glory for himself. Here is how he recalled it in his own scrolls. Of all the warriors from our clan, I will be the first to attack. I am Takazaki Goro Suinaga. Watch me attack. Saying so, I charged. As I was about to attack, my retainer, Togenda Sukimitsu, said, More of our men are coming. Wait for reinforcements, get a witness, and then attack. I replied, the way of the bow and arrow is to do what is worthy of reward. Charge! The invaders established their camp at Sohara and planted many battle flags. There we fought. My bannerman was first. His horse was shot and he was thrown down. Just after my horse was shot and I was thrown off, Shiroichi Michiyasu of Hizen province attacked with a formidable squad of horsemen. I would have died had it not been for him. Against all odds, Michiyasu survived as well, and so we both agreed to be a witness for each other. Yeah, good job, hero. You charged against orders like an idiot, and it took someone else to pull your butt out of the fire. But that was often just how samurai operated. Personal glory and honor came before good military tactics. Though they should have thanked their lucky stars and not all the samurai were as dumb and reckless as Takazaki Suinaga. As night fell, the Japanese expected an attack at dawn. But it never came. The Mongol and Korean leaders had a conference that night on board their ships. Surprisingly, it was the Korean general, Kim Pang-yong, who wanted to stay and continue the fight. But the Mongol and Chinese generals wanted to pull back onto the ships. Liu Fuxiang, who had been shot in the freaking face, by the way, had obvious reasons for recommending retreat. After burning any Japanese building they could get to, including the Hachiman Shrine at Hakuzaki, the Mongols withdrew overnight. The Japanese woke up on November 16th to find that the invader had vanished. This sudden end to the invasion has been sort of mysterious ever since. The Mongols were clearly winning the battle when they decided to pull out and retreat. Now, the Mongols did run into a storm, either in Hakata Bay or on their way back But this was nowhere near the terrible storm of 1281, and probably didn't have much to do with the cancellation of the invasion. November is well out of typhoon season, and the Japanese records don't even mention a storm. The later notion that a storm saved the Japanese in 1274, as well as 1281, doesn't make a lot of sense. The 1274 storm may have been no more than a bad wind, but apparently it did damage the Korean ships pretty badly. But if the storm didn't force them to withdraw, what did? Well, what were the Mongols trying to accomplish? What was their mission? Before the Mongols attacked any major foe, whether it was the Russians or the Persians or the Chinese, they usually sent out a large raid several years in advance of the main invasion. For my military listeners, the term is reconnaissance in force. Now, A Mongol reconnaissance in force was liable to bust up any local military forces anyway just because the Mongols were that dangerous, but it also had limited objectives. Go in, kick up a fuss, get an idea of what the resistance will be like next time, and get out of Dodge. Now, combine that strategy with Kublai Khan's desire to punish Japan for their defiance and their continued trade with China, and the 1274 invasion suddenly makes a lot more sense the Mongols hadn't come to conquer. They had come to terrorize, burn some stuff, get a lay of the land, and bug out. So what the Japanese saw was a miracle. The Mongols withdrawing when it seemed like they were on the verge of winning was probably just part of the plan all along. The Mongols had massacred a bunch of folks on Tsushima and Iki, burned the trade port of Hakata and a sacred Japanese shrine, and scared the living bejesus out of the samurai. And that was fine, mission accomplished. To be honest, the Japanese had gotten lucky. They knew all the way up to Hojo, Tokimune, and Kamakura, that the Mongols would be back. This had been a wake up call, a warning. Next time the Mongols came, the whole Japanese nation would be fighting for survival. It was time to start preparing, and it was time to start praying. The rematch would come in 1281. It was in the years between the two Mongol invasions, that Hojo Tokimune and his bakufu really earned their legendary status as the saviors of Japan. It's kind of funny that the two major leaders in this struggle, the Mongol Emperor Kublai Khan and the Japanese Regent Hojo Tokimune, never once set foot on the battlefield. You notice I didn't even mention the Japanese emperor's name because it's just not that important. (laughs) These leaders just guided the course of events from long range from Beijing and Kamakura. But that didn't mean their actions had no impact. In fact, the decisions at the capital cities would have a far-reaching effect on the course of the second Mongol invasion of Japan. The Kamakura government made it clear there would be no surrender. In 1275, Kublai Khan sent another set of diplomats to Japan to repeat his demands, you know, here's the first invasion, smack you in the face, all right, will you surrender now? This time, Hojo Tokimune didn't mess around. He brought the diplomats all the way to Kamakura, heard them out, then had them executed. Now, executing Mongol diplomats is a very dangerous thing to do. The Khwarezmian shahs of Persia had executed Genghis Khan's diplomats like 50 years ago, and within three years, there was no Khwarezmian empire, and two million of its subjects were dead. The Japanese knew the Mongol reputation, and they knew full well what they were getting themselves into. There was no going back now. Given that Japan was such a decentralized and feudal state in this period, the Bakufu's ability to bring the country together and get the samurai and governors to cooperate was frankly pretty incredible. The preparations for the inevitable second Mongol invasion were some of the greatest achievements of the pre-modern Japanese state the Bakufu ordered that each province on Kyushu provide workers to fortify the western coast of the island. They'd establish rosters for guard and garrison duty and established new defensive posts all along the coastline. They even considered taking the offensive and launching a raid against the Korean ports, but this measured up to nothing. This never ended up happening. Tokimune's government also carefully examined which samurai had responded to the call of duty and which hadn't, and made it very clear that if the Mongols came back, failure to answer the call would be punished very harshly. There was also the matter of rewarding those samurai that had taken part in the 1274 battle, and no one was more eager for his reward than our hero, Takezaki Suinaga. He constantly petitioned the government to recognize his heroic service in the defense of the realm which, if you'll remember, consisted of him falling off his horse and having to be rescued. I'm serious. Sōinaga's scrolls show him praying far more on his way to get recognition and rewards than before the actual battle. After months of pestering the central government, he finally got an audience with the chief administrator. Here's what his scroll says. On the first day of the 11th month, I was worshipping at the Hachiman Shrine, when I was summoned alone to the audience hall. Yasukio said, This shogunal edict, confirming your land holdings, has been granted from above as a reward for your battle service, here. Bowing deeply, I respectfully looked to Yasukio and received the document. As I was taking the document, Yasukio also said, Yasumori personally requested that you be directly rewarded. Here. Now, will you finally leave? I don't know about you guys, but to me, this sounds like a bureaucrat who has just had it with this guy. I felt that in my soul. This time of national danger, like so many other occasions in history, was accompanied by a surge in religious devotion in Japan. In Kyoto, The emperor made a royal procession to the Iwashimizu Shrine to pray for the safety of his nation. The other great shrines were commissioned to make constant prayers to preserve Japan and defeat the foreign enemy. All of this was seen to be just as important as military preparation. In a way, for the Japanese, it was military preparation. It would require both sword and spirit to save Japan. The most important material move the Japanese made, though was to build a wall. Specifically, a series of defensive walls around Hakata Bay that would hopefully delay the next Mongol attack long enough to gather more Japanese troops. When completed, the Great Wall of Hakata stretched for over 12 miles. It was placed about 50 meters in from the shoreline, presented seven feet of stone to the sea, so seven feet high, and had a low earth ramp on the landward side, up which horses could ride, so the Japanese samurai could ride up and shoot from horseback. The wall was a great national project. If Hakata Bay was the site of another Mongol attack, it would not be as undefended as it had been last time. The Japanese would need all the prayers, organization, and walls they could get, because Kublai Khan was indeed coming back took much longer than you might expect. First, Kublai was finally wrapping up the conquest of China. The remnants of the Song Dynasty were finally defeated in a gigantic naval battle in 1279, and it wasn't long before Kublai was ordering his new Chinese subjects to construct 600 more warships for another invasion of Japan. Korea had had its own issues. Building the fleet of 1274, and then losing a bunch of it in that storm, had almost broken the Korean economy. They were on the verge of famine. They still hadn't recovered from the previous rebellions, and thousands of experienced sailors had died in 1274. The Korean vassal kings pleaded with Kublai not to attempt another invasion, but the Khan was determined that Japan must be subdued. The Khan's subjects worked overtime to slap together the fleets in preparation for the invasion date of 1281, The Chinese in particular had to throw together an enormous flotilla at almost no notice, and many of the ships were just not well put together for this second great invasion. The Mongols also conscripted large numbers of unwilling Chinese fighters, including former Song soldiers, convicted criminals, and even those in mourning for their parents who had always been exempted from military service in China. Kublai didn't care. He believed that quantity had a quality all its own. The result was that a huge invasion force was assembled for the second invasion of Japan. In late 1280, Kublai created a planning conference to prepare for the invasion. The Mongols acknowledged the fierce resistance they had faced in 1274, and the scale of the new attack would therefore be much bigger. Plus, this wasn't gonna be no raid. Modern marine archeologists have found farming tools, agricultural tools, on board the sunken ships, This meant that the Mongols were coming to stay. The strategy that emerged was a two-pronged attack. Supposedly 40,000 Korean and Mongol troops from Korea on 900 ships and 100,000 Chinese troops on 3,500 ships from southern China. That's huge. Again, the numbers, medieval numbers. There's just no way. That's a bigger invasion force than D-Day so I'm going to press the doubt button on these supposed numbers. Still, with the Chinese forces added, there's no doubt that the Mongols had an overwhelming military force at hand for the second invasion of Japan. Both sides were pulling out all the stops. It was time for the rematch. In their second attack on Japan, one of the Mongols' big problems ended up being coordination. Now, it's not easy to coordinate military units today with radios and satellite communication, so it was much harder in 1281. But the Mongols had been historically good at long-range planning and synchronization. The problem here, I think, was that the Mongols had never had to coordinate Navies before, and a navy is much more dependent on the weather and on serviceable equipment than an army is. The fact was that the Mongols were supposed to attack in May 1281, so they could avoid the autumn and the storms that would come with it. That's the typhoon season. The Eastern Fleet, sailing from Korea, would take the same route the Mongols had taken in 1274. The Southern Fleet would sail over the East China Sea from China rendezvous with the eastern fleet near Iki, then the two combined forces would launch one massive assault, aiming once again at Hakata Bay. The Koreans were ready when the time came, but the Chinese fleet apparently suffered a bunch of delays. There weren't enough ships. The ships weren't in good shape. They had trouble finding enough sailors and supplies. Basically, the Chinese just weren't ready on time. Either way, the Korean fleet set sail on May 22nd, 1281, right on schedule. They moved much slower than they had in 1274, mainly due to the fact they were a much larger fleet this time, but once again, Tsushima was the first target on their hit list. Once again, the Japanese put up a stiff, valiant resistance, but they were defeated, and Tsushima was ravaged again. The fleet moved on to Iki, where the resistance was now led by Shoni Suketoki, the young man who had fired the whistling arrow that had made the Mongols laugh eight years ago in 1274. Well, now the brave young commander led his limited numbers of samurai in a futile defense, passing to Japanese myth as a valiant hero. He even has a shrine dedicated to him that still stands on Iki today. But that wasn't enough to save the island. I mean, come on, why would you even still live on these islands after what happened in 1274? You know the Mongols are coming back. I'm surprised there was anyone left to defend them. So far, same result, 1274. The Japanese on Tsushima and Iki were defeated, Horrible acts committed against the civilians, which is par for the course for the Mongols. But after that, things went differently. The Eastern Fleet was supposed to wait at Iki for the Southern Fleet to arrive so they could attack together. That was the plan. But instead, for some reason, they did not do that. The Eastern Fleet decided to go it alone and attack Japan before the Southern Fleet arrived. We don't know why this decision was made, or even who made it, because... We don't know who was in charge of this fleet, the records don't tell us. Whoever it was also made the even weirder choice to divide the fleet, sending 300 ships to attack the main Japanese island of Honshu in what turned out to be just a silly raid. Now, these were stupid decisions. Why would you not only attack before your entire force was available, but divide the force you currently have, knowing that the Japanese had been preparing for this for the last almost a decade? Who knows? Maybe the Mongols just had their worst dude in charge here. Maybe this guy was their Elphinstone. The upshot was that on June 23rd, a full week before the scheduled rendezvous with the Southern Fleet, so they didn't even know the Southern Fleet was delayed yet, the Mongol attack force sailed from Iki. While the Eastern Detachment, the raid on Honshu, was easily fended off by samurai, the main force moved straight into Hakata Bay, the same battle site, the same battlefield as 1274. But this time, the Japanese were not going to be firing whistling arrows or charging like idiots into the Mongol ranks. This time, they were ready. The Mongols rode their landing craft onto the Hakata beaches, but immediately ran into the wall. From atop the wall, Japanese archers on foot and samurai on horseback unleashed powerful, accurate volleys that kept the Mongols from establishing a foothold the mongols weren't able to get into their tight formations because the wall was too close to the sea and they weren't able to shoot back at the japanese because the wall blocked their line of sight they were basically in the same position as the americans on omaha beach in d-day remember saving private ryan smaller scale but you get the idea but they didn't have the benefit of air power or naval bombardment to help them establish a beachhead so the second battle of hakata bay ended up being a massive failure for the mongols they were just unable to land, and after multiple attempts to climb the wall, they were forced to pick up and row back to their ships. Once they had gotten back to their fleet, the Mongols decided to take over a couple of small islands in Hakata Bay, called shiga Noko, and use them as bases to raid the Japanese position. If a frontal attack hadn't worked, maybe they could wear the samurai down. But like I said, the Japanese were capital R READY. Hojo Tokimune and the Kamakura Bakufu had pulled out all the stops and dedicated every resource they could muster to fend off the Mongol threat. They had been preparing for eight years, and the preparations had been so thorough and demanding that it had stretched Japan to the limit. But the samurai had come, and they wouldn't just defend. They would attack. With the Mongol fleet idle in Hakata Bay, the Japanese had a ready solution. Shiga had a small sandbar that connected it to the mainland, which the Japanese used to attack the Mongols on land, but the really incredible counterattack occurred on the water. The defensive preparations had involved the stockpiling of small boats all along the coast, and as the Mongols sat at anchor in Hakata Bay, the Japanese took the fight to them. Under cover of night, or even in the daylight, samurai would pile onto small boats, row out to the Mongol vessels, board them, and get to work. Many of the small Japanese boats had folding masts, which could be dropped down to provide a footbridge and cross over to the Mongol ships. Some samurai even swam out to the enemy vessels, climbed aboard with grappling hooks, and assassinated their captains. In retrospect, this was actually pretty brilliant. This strategy emphasized the strengths of Japanese military culture, which are individual fighting skills, small group tactics, personal courage and exploited the mongols weaknesses the mongols were just not ready for this tactic you can't get into formation on the deck of a ship they just weren't ready for crazy dudes in armor to start climbing onto their ships with swords and bows in the middle of the night you know who else wasn't ready our old friend takizaki soinaga having been rewarded for doing basically nothing in 1274 he was determined to make a contribution in 1281 Unlike many of the other samurai, I guess he hadn't brought a boat. (laughs) Imagine his face. You guys brought boats? I didn't bring a boat. So he kept running up and down the beach trying to hitch a ride on someone else's boat, pissing a lot of people off in the process. This is hilarious. Imagine this. No one was willing to give up their seat to this douchebag samurai who already had a questionable reputation. And he even tried to force himself onto several boats only to get thrown off. Finally, Soinaga managed to persuade someone to let him on board. Let's go back to his scrolls. As they brought their boat nearby, I boarded. My retainers saw this and complained that I was abandoning them, but only I could embark. The way of the bow and arrow is to do what is worthy of reward. Without even a single follower, I set off to engage the enemy. At this point, Suinaga realized that he had forgotten his helmet. Since my retainers did not know that I had left my helmet behind, I picked up the shin guards that Murazane had brought on the boat, tied them together and placed them on my head as a temporary helmet. When he saw a younger samurai who had removed his helmet, Suenaga tried to order him to hand it over, only to be turned down after several attempts and threats. He's literally trying to steal his subordinate's gear so he doesn't have to go in unprotected. How is one of our main historical sources for one of the most important events in history, just one of the worst samurai ever? I don't know. As the bow rode out to the Mongol ship, the samurai climbed on board and Soinaga did not too bad. Even though the shin guards fell off his head during the attack, <laughs> idiot. Soinaga cut off a few Mongol heads and you know what? He did his part. Kudos Soinaga, you weren't completely useless this time. So raids like these, crippled Mongol morale and caused heavy losses. Not all the samurai were as hopeless as Takazaki Suinaga. Kusano Jiro's force managed to board a ship and set it on fire, taking 21 Mongol heads back with them in the process. Kawano Michiari captured a general and brought him back alive. The result of all these attacks was that the Mongol fleet, surprised and bewildered by the hordes of angry samurai climbing all over their ships, retreated back to Iki on July 16th. They had hung around in Hakata Bay for three weeks with nothing to show for it except blood, fire, and a bunch of decapitated generals. The Japanese had apparently driven off the second invasion. But by the beginning of August, the great fleet from China had finally appeared off of Iki. It had been delayed by almost two months, but it had finally arrived and now the full force could attack together. Instead of attacking Hakata Bay again, the combined Mongol fleet decided instead to swing south and attack the hopefully undefended area of Imari Bay and the island of Takashima. This was far to the west of the stone wall that defended Hakata Bay, and so it was hopefully outside of the Japanese defensive plans. And the Mongols were right. The Japanese had built no defenses on Takashima, so they had to once again take to the sea to defend their homeland. On August 12th, a sea battle ensued around the island of Takashima. Sadly, we know very little about this sea battle. Japanese sources give no direct accounts. Apparently, Takazaki Suenaga wasn't there, which I mean, he's a terrible source, but he's a source, we don't have one. Our main source on this engagement is the inscription on the tomb of a Chinese soldier. Either way, it seems like this was a repeat of the little ship raids that had occurred in Hakata Bay just on a much larger scale. There was also the possibility that the Japanese used fire ships, which they might steer towards the tightly packed vessels of the Mongol fleet. We just don't know. Either way, the Japanese put up a heck of a fight. When dawn broke on August 13th, though, the Japanese were forced to withdraw back to land. According to some sources, the situation at this point looked grim. The Mongols were supposedly primed to land on the Japanese mainland, having outflanked the wall and outfought the little ships. But let's take a look at this for a minute. The Japanese had resisted Mongol attacks for almost two months by now, and they had kept the invaders from gaining a foothold. At no point during the invasion of 1281 did the Mongols ever gain a secure foothold on the mainland. And this long delay, along with the premature attack by the eastern fleet and the late arrival of the southern fleet, had pushed the Mongol timeline back. They had wanted to attack in June, before the stormy season. But it was now August, and the stormy season was here. One last critical event had occurred. The Japanese little ship raids had caused such panic and consternation in the Mongol fleet that the commanders ordered their ships chained together in a tight cordon, with planks laid between them as a defensive platform. Even as the experienced Korean sailors warned them of the foreboding weather, The Mongol fleet was demoralized, diseased, and chained together in the shallow waters of Imari Bay. The Korean ships, battle-scarred after two months of fighting, the Chinese ships, slapped together on short notice and packed with unmotivated former Song soldiers, and they were directly in the path of the divine wind. As the Mongol invasion of 1281 seemed to be grinding towards victory, the emperor sent yet another envoy to the great shrine of Issei to offer a final prayer to Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun and his alleged ancestor. The Japanese had been praying against the invaders for years, and Hojo Tokimune at his base in Kamakura had been praying as well. Whether it was the power of prayer or not, and many Japanese certainly believed it was, what happened next still looked an awful lot like divine intervention. While the Mongol fleet lay in anchor at Takashima, a massive typhoon came blasting into the straits. The tempest pulverized the Mongol fleet, sending ships crashing into each other or dashing into the rocks near the shore. Men were flung overboard, and with no hope of rescue, countless numbers ended up drowning. Most of the Korean captains realized the danger early because they knew these straits and managed to cut their anchor ropes, slip out to sea, and try to ride out the storm. But the poorly made Chinese ships, shackled together in the narrows of the bay, were kicked apart like a Jenga tower. The great bellowing typhoon swamped Kublai Khan's armada, tossing it around like a toy. The storm raged for two days, and when it ended, so did the second Mongol invasion of Japan. Imagine this, can you? A fleet of hundreds, possibly thousands of ships called in a hurricane that dashes them against the rocks or each other. Thousands of men, many of whom weren't even Mongols, caught in the dramatic waves and tossed aside by the fury of the typhoon. It may have been one of the worst naval disasters in history, and probably the worst since before the birth of Jesus Christ. The human cost must have been devastating. A Korean source is very precise, estimating that 30% of their people did not return. But remember, the Koreans were better off than most of the fleet. Chinese and Mongol sources indicate a casualty rate of between 60 to 90% on their ships, and most of the surviving vessels were so badly damaged, there was no hope of saving the expedition. When the typhoon had finally cleared, the Chinese and Mongol commanders gathered what they could and immediately headed back to the Asian mainland. They left, tens of thousands of survivors, castaways and dead, lining the shores of Japan, along with a bay full of wreckage and debris. The Japanese showed no mercy to the helpless Mongol survivors. Samurai descended from the hills to mutilate and slaughter the Mongol and Korean invaders, but notably left the Song Chinese alive, since the Japanese felt that they had been forced to join the attack. They just enslaved the Chinese, because that's better? I mean, yeah sure, but what about the poor Koreans? They didn't want to be there either. Either way, the Japanese people rejoiced. The Mongols had been driven back from her shores, and this time for good. Japan was saved, but who had done the saving? The answer to that question would change Japanese history forever. Across Japan, thanks went up to the gods for the amazing deliverance that their nation had received from the Mongol invader. The typhoon of August 15, 1281 came to be seen as divine intervention, a symbol of the gods' favor, the power of prayer, and the proof of Japan as a blessed realm that could never be invaded. In Japanese memory, The typhoon that destroyed the Mongol fleet is remembered as the Kamikaze, literally translated as God Wind or Divine Wind. Kublai Khan never did attempt another invasion of Japan. There were preparations and ideas throughout the 1280s, but he abandoned them when he began to have uh, problems in other areas of his empire. After 1281, in fact, there seemed to be a curse on any other Mongolian naval expedition the Mongols failed to conquer Vietnam in 1284-85, and Java in 1293, and both were utter failures, though none were as spectacular or dramatic as the enormous disaster of 1281. The failed invasion of 1281 was so well-recorded that even Marco Polo wrote about it, which makes it the first event in Japanese history recorded by a European. In fact, the Mongol invasions of Japan are one of the only great military failures in their history, The Mongols were so good at so many other ways of killing bunches of people, but never seemed to figure out how to use their navies correctly. Maybe the execution was just bad, but given that four different naval expeditions all met in failure from 1274 to 1293, there was something fundamental at work here. That's not coincidence. I think one of the big reasons the Mongols weren't able to expand on the sea as they had on the land was that this was a type of warfare they had no choice but to outsource. And the poor Chinese and Koreans were never super enthusiastic about risking life, limb, and eyesight for their Mongol masters. Now, Kublai Khan had to save face after this enormous disaster. And who better to blame than the weather? Any conqueror who loses a battle loves to blame the weather. Just ask Napoleon or Hitler. In fact, Mongol sources place all blame on the typhoon, while conveniently ignoring the fact that they weren't able to win a battle before the typhoon hit. Either way, whatever Kublai said kept him in power. He died in 1294, 13 years after his last invasion of Japan, and his dynasty would rule China until the 1360s. The invasion of Japan had been a disappointment, but it had done nothing to end or even weaken his regime. Ironically, the victory of 1281 proved more fatal to the Japanese government than the Mongols. Hojo Tokimune died in 1284 and is rightly regarded as one of Japan's greatest leaders for the determination and competence he showed during the threat of Mongol invasion. But the government's appeal to the gods for help and their belief that the gods had delivered Japan through the power of prayer ended up weakening the government's position after the invasion. It was the priests and monks that took credit for defeating the Mongols, and to them went most of the rewards that the Kamakura Bakufu gave out after the invasion. Remember how important reward and recognition was to Japanese samurai? Remember how important religion was to Japanese daily life? Well, it turned out that this left the samurai feeling mighty resentful. The financial, physical, and moral burden of defeating the Mongol invasion had fallen on them, But most of the credit and most of the reward went to the priests. This bitterness is the whole reason we have the scrolls of Takazaki Suenaga, who made a very lengthy record and appeal to the central government asking for reward for his meritorious service in 1281. Now Suenaga was a pretty garbage samurai, but he did serve and you can kind of see his frustration. All of this resentment would eventually lead to the downfall of the Hojo regime in Kamakura, the destruction of the first shogunate and a period of civil war. Victory was a bitter pill for the Japanese government. Still, the myth persisted that the divine wind had been what saved Japan from the Mongol invader. Though people at the time did not necessarily buy into this myth, the writers of the history books put far more emphasis on the power of the typhoon and its godly status than on the bitter resistance of the samurai at Hakata Bay and Takashima. The result was a belief that Japan was divinely protected, the chosen nation of the gods, and could never be successfully invaded. If anyone tried, the divine wind would protect them. This belief would have tragic consequences the next time Japan was under siege. That time would come when another barbarian fleet would threaten Japan almost seven centuries later, in 1945. The United States approached Japan with numbers and firepower that the Mongols never could have dreamed of. This time, the divine wind was a human sacrifice, as young pilots were forced to take to the skies and launch suicide attacks on the Allied ships. They were called the Kamikazes. Many were trained to take off, but not to land at least 3,800 Japanese lambs would be sent to the slaughter of the Kamikaze campaign. More Japanese combatants then had died in either Mongol invasion of Japan. These pilots were told that they were the new divine wind, the new wind of the gods that would preserve Japan from invasion. Their horrifying tactic was a conscious attempt to relive the alleged divine intervention of Japan's finest hour. In 1945 though, the Kamikaze would fail, But that's a story I think we all know. So what's the point, James? Why does it matter? Why should I care? Okay, let's make a quick recap. The Mongols of Kublai Khan ruled the strongest empire in the world, but on two separate occasions, they failed to invade and subdue Japan. This was despite their superiority in numbers, their massive fleet, their more advanced tactics and weaponry, including gunpowder bombs. The Japanese, the definite underdogs, proved to be a tougher nut to crack than anyone expected. So why did the Mongols fail? Why did they fail to defeat Japan? Was it Mongol incompetence? Was it the fierce resistance of the Japanese samurai and the Kamakura Bakufu's intense preparations for the second invasion? Or was it a little bit of divine intervention? Well, Just like we discussed at the beginning, that depends on who you ask. Both the Mongols and the Japanese had a vested interest in downplaying the military aspects of the campaign and chalking it up to chance or divine favor. For the Mongols, it was an excuse. Not willing to admit that they had been defeated long before the typhoon showed up, Kublai Khan's generals played up the typhoons' impact on their defeat, they also exaggerated the impact of the much lesser storm of 1274. They even gave credence to the divine intervention theory. They claimed that Japanese prayers and gods had helped rile up the storm against them. This is the Mongols claiming this. Whatever they said worked, since it kept Kublai Khan from executing them for their failure. So to the Mongols, the myth of the storm helped to cover up their failures, both in 1274 and 1281. For the Japanese... There was a powerful current of religious revival at the time, and it was this movement that sought to gain power and authority by claiming responsibility for the divine wind that had saved Japan. This was a convenient belief for Japanese nationalists later on, who, like so many people in so many countries, wanted to believe their country was special. The idea of Japan as uniquely protected by the gods became an article of patriotism, and the divine wind became part of this national myth. If you said that the kamikaze wasn't important, you might be saying that Japan wasn't special. But this is where the underwater archaeology that I mentioned at the beginning comes back into play. Remember those guys, those awesome scientists and archaeologists who found Kublai Khan's fleet It was the archaeologists that revealed the poor conditions of the Chinese ships, their close locations to each other and to the shore, and the ropes and chains that bound them together when the storm came. The intensity of the kamikaze was what sunk the Mongol fleet. But the conditions that created this disaster were caused by two months of bitter Japanese resistance and the constant attacks of the small ships. The divine wind was a final knockout blow, against an invasion that was already having problems and had already failed to achieve its goals. It wasn't the typhoon that stopped the Mongols. It was the Japanese. The undeniable valor, fighting ability, and preparation of the Japanese samurai had stopped the Mongols dead, which exposed them to the fury of the storm. Even idiots like Takazaki Suinaga had something to contribute to the salvation of their country. But that truth was not convenient to either the victor or the vanquished. It goes to show you how and why the past can be twisted to suit the needs of the present. And that's our lesson in this episode. Today, the great city of Fukuoka now occupies the coast of Hakata Bay. Very little is left of the battlefield, except for some remnants of the Great Wall and the remnants of men like Captain Wang beneath the waves. Nothing shows how the Japanese remember the Mongol invasions more than who they choose to honor at their side of victory. A statue of Nichiren, the reactionary Buddhist monk who prophesied of the Mongol invasion, stands in Fukuoka, looking out to the sea. The hustle and bustle of modern Japan passes by him every day. I wonder how often they think about it. Over 700 years ago, their entire civilization faced destruction by some of the most lethal warriors the world had ever seen. Japan still exists as it does today because of the determination of a few brave warriors, the leadership of a few talented men, and maybe, just maybe, a little dash of divine wind. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening to this episode. I hope you had a good time because the Mongols sure as heck didn't. I appreciate your support and feedback as I continue to try and get this podcast off the ground. If you like this podcast, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. If you want to read some more about the Mongols or Kublai Khan, or just check out a bunch of my ramblings you can check my website and leave a comment at unknown If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNK soldiers pod. You can even email me at unknown soldiers at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. Even if it's just kind words, I ain't perfect. So if you got advice, I would love to hear it again. Once more, Thank you so much for listening. Also, pack your bags, because next week we're going to North America. We're going to meet a tiny Indian tribe called the Nez Perce and experience their heartbreaking trek across the Rocky Mountains, the most epic journey in American history. Hope to see you next week on Unknown Soldiers.